Welcome to another edition of the Grassroots Government Podcast. I'm Avery Davidson hosting this. Producing, as always, is Carl Wiggers, and we have Louisiana Farm Bureau National Affairs Coordinator Andy Brown and Louisiana Farm Bureau Legislative Specialist Joe Mapes with us. And Joe, I'm going to start off with you because it's been a, a, a different kind of week for you getting to go back to the legislature. It has been, but I'm going to start with the personal uh, account of that, which, you know, even though there's far less people there and you have police tape between chairs and between rows and 90% of the people are wearing masks, it still feels like old home week to me because I, like the rest of everybody else, was uh, at home for six weeks or so uh, in the stay-at-home mandate. And so get out is nice, but to actually be in that building, it's like nothing's wrong with the world. You know, there's a, I know when I leave the building, you know, everything's different. But inside that building, for me, nothing's different at all. I've been going to that building since I was a child. So it's been – and also, guys, uh, you don't have nearly the many, as many people as from the public, uh, groups of people touring, people coming in from around the world. I mean, there's the place – y'all have been there. It's packed usually. Well, since it's not packed, I'm able to actually get a lot more work done. Okay, so if usually in the past, y'all have been with me. If I try to walk from the House Committee area to the Senate Committee area, that'll take me about an hour and a half, you know, because of the people that stop. But now there's not so many people, and I can actually go from the House to the Senate and vice versa. I can remember who I was supposed to talk to. You know, it's just, it's crazy. It's, uh, it's, it, I'm enjoying myself at the session. Frankly, um, I'm sure there's a, a lot of people scared that the session is going, and they should be. We joke when, when people ask us, they go, hey, Joe, how's the, how's the legis- things going down at the legislature? And I go, well, they're uh, at adjournment right now, so we're all a little bit safer. And everybody's like, what? But you know what? It's 100% true. And so I'm, we're watching bills that affect industries and professions down there pass through the process with no witnesses on either side of the bill, with no testimony. And, pe- and, 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 and legislators actually say this, they'll go, Oh, so there's no opposition to this bill? And I'm thinking, well, there's a worldwide pandemic, you know, happening. So people are a little scared to come in buildings. You know, like over 30 people, Sandy and I have counted in the legislative process, including Ronnie Anderson. But uh, he, 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 he uh, when he was in that room, I was told yesterday, uh, Representative Jack McFarland, chairman of the House Ag Committee, who was in that room with us, he said they told him, and I'm, I'm guessing that's Senate security, that there were four people in that room of 12 with us that had the COVID that day. And, and, and so I know Kevin Hayes is a lobbyist. He's got, he had the COVID, he's tested positive for the antibodies. Staffers, I can go down the list. So over 30 people, uh, 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 Reggie Bagala from Raceland, uh, state representative, he died. He contracted the uh, COVID and I think he died within 72 hours. So uh, it's, it's, it's uh, it's something, but we're down there. We're still promoting and protecting agriculture. We've got some good friends in this legislature, and 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 they're helping us. And we've got a new way of lobbying, even though we can talk to some legislators out in the halls, uh, outside of committees or outside the chambers or whatever. Uh, it's quicker to get on the phone now and sit one place in the Capitol. And I called the president of the Senate, for example. I know he's a busy man, so I, I needed his support on something. I just left a voicemail. Ten minutes later, he walks by. I'm still on the phone with somebody else. He just gives me a thumbs up. So it's 
it's a different kind. We're not always going face to face now, and we're integrating the electronic right there inside the Capitol, even though we're in the physical building. So that's that's interesting too. And I was able to hit the entire Senate floor. Not, I mean, about 80% of them yesterday just by myself on that phone. What are some of the issues that uh, you're uh, addressing, especially considering you're not going to have all the time you would have, but those issues are still there in agriculture? Well, uh, tort reform. We've got the bill scheduled, the big omnibus uh, comprehensive tort reform bill. Uh, we've got it scheduled to be heard Tuesday. And we've got a couple other tort reform bills uh, scheduled next week as well. We're lobbying that committee right now. Uh, you know, there's there's not uh, 70 Republicans in the House. There's only 68. I don't think you're going to get any Democrats or the Black Caucus to vote for court reform. They got two independents out there. You got to you know have to uh, squeeze them. And I don't know how that's going to go. But the point is, it's no guarantee that tort reform gets through this process, especially since it's truncated, especially since there's a, a virus attached to it. Yes, Carl. A couple of weeks ago, you mentioned how um, with this truncated uh, session that we're now going to have, it's going to be a lot easier to kill a bill than to pass a bill. Uh, is that you know kind of some of what we're thinking about with tort reform right here? I'm glad you asked me that question. I wish my some of my other clients were in this uh meeting here because they've got bills that affect them greatly and i mean they're so upset about them and they should be they should be upset that the legislature is even meeting right now number one but they should be upset that they're issues that are non-essential issues they're essential to their industry but they're not essential to the state running uh so we shouldn't even be considering them but they can't even get up there uh to deal with them Carl, right now so is the fact that it's truncated is that going to be detrimental to us putting that bill forward yes it will be because the virus is going to keep people out of the capital some legislators have said that one has said she's gone and she's not coming back you know and and so others are coming on again off again kind of so the bottom line is one of the best ways to kill a bill is if you have what we call a light house you know so it's 105 members in the house but, but last week we had one day where I counted like 80, 82 members. And if you need 70 votes on a bill, you know, you're not going to get them with 82 members in the house. So to answer your question, the truncated session definitely it makes it easier to kill a bill than the passive. So going forward, you mentioned that there's, there are some things coming up with no opposition because no one is there, at least no perceived opposition. How do you overcome that? I mean, you're talking about some bills that are going to be important to the logging industry, that are going to be important to farmers and ranchers across the state. Coming up, how do you still make sure they know, hey, this isn't good for us? It, it's it's very, very difficult. I mean, you know, if you've got somebody that's uh, a good strategist, government relations strategist, and has already been doing this electronically, like with, you know, emails, text, uh, you know, voter voice, phone calls, whatever, uh, that's the way you, you get the message out. But there's going to be a lot of people that aren't that organized and that aren't prepared for that, that, that come up there and just talk, you know, and, and witness and talk to people in person. Uh, it's it's the, the big concern that a lot of us attached to the process discuss these days is what happens to this legislation, whatever it is, that comes out of the session. If every single part of the process, we're going to get to a point since it is truncated, we have to move quickly. Every session hits a log jam. We haven't hit it yet. We will hit that log jam. We will need to get out of it and move quicker. 
that point, we're going to need bipartisan support of a two-thirds vote to suspend different parts of the process. And if we don't suspend different parts of this process and pass legislation through it, then it can be challenged in court as far as being unconstitutional because we didn't suspend the rules. Now, we can do anything we want in the legislature as long as we have a two-thirds vote to suspend the rules. What about our grassroots Louisiana Farm Bureau members? can they do to help this process right now? Well, that's a great question. And, and, and I'm going to tell you that both Sandy and I uh, talked about this uh, this week. When those legislators pick up the phone to talk to us, they are so happy to hear from us. And it's not Sandy and me, it's the support. They're down there. Uh, I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of them that are a little scared, a little you know, iffy about being there. I don't know, Avery, maybe, maybe we could get the members to pick up the phone and just say thank you because, you know, they're getting a lot of criticism of being down there. And I don't agree with them being down there. I really don't. And if we were down there, I think we should have a master list of legislation that was uh, deemed essential with a definition of what essential is. But when you get into a battle between two professions that's been going on for 10 years and you try to put it on committee to dupe the other side because they can't get the town and under these conditions, we shouldn't that we shouldn't be doing that. We should take a master list or just the budget. Hey, how about that? And then come back in the fall for a uh, maybe an economic development session with a listed number of items that call. You know, but I'm living a dream, uh, you know, a dream right there, right, Andy? That's a pipe dream bipartisanship that that, that I'm espousing right there. Well that's what I wanted to to ask you real quick, Joe, I know there was a Politico article that came out yesterday about the federal lobbying scene and how a gargantuan fight is going to ensue with all of the interests and all of the needs that are out there. On the state level, I mean, is it from what you do and the, the folks that are paid to be there, are those folks showing up and uh, how does that play into what's heard during this session? I, I, there's a there's a relatively small group of what I consider to be a professional lobbyist, a professional firm lobbyist. They they are there. Um, they've always been there, regardless of the situation. We're part of that group, uh, but a lot of people are attached to associations, and and those types of people are not there. You know, they're, 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 they'll they'll come up and. Uh, I talked to one lobbyist yesterday who, who never came until yesterday. He's been doing everything electronically. I think it's going to, I don't know, it's going to make a difference. Well, I know that on the national front, there's a lot of things going on as well. And we uh, recently had U.S. Senator Bill Cassidy sign on with 16 other senators on a letter asking the USDA to include poultry farmers in the CARES Act and in the aid packages. Andy, uh, how important is having some support like that? Yeah, we're seeing how paramount that can be. Uh, just as we're on this on this call today, I got noticed that uh, we've we've been trying to weigh in with both chambers on payment limits. We got wind that this um, this food aid program was going to have some pretty tight payment limits, and when you're in the need of aid, uh, that's not the kind of thing you want to hear. Well, we're here now that USDA is backing up on that. And we had help from some of our members in the House to weigh in on that with USDA, and that's been successful. So something like Senator Cassidy weighing in on poultry, I also saw that he weighed in on the seafood industry. So 
they know their role and, and they can't always get behind everything. But when they do, uh, to some letters and signatures may seem like a silly process, but for what I do, it's, it's all we have to fight with. And especially on times like these where you can't fly up there and be in person and, and tell them you got to write it down and you got to email it and you got to hope that they read it. So uh, having a congressman's name attached to it or a couple hundred congressmen or, you know, dozens of senators, that makes the impact. Well, I know right now there's a big impact for our poultry farm. Why is it so hard to figure out who to pay or who can get disaster aid when it comes to poultry? Yeah, I'm, and I'm learning this too, but I, I've worked enough with poultry to understand. But just for those that aren't in that industry, you hear the term vertically integrated, and that has its own uh, connotations in different circles. But what that means when it comes to federal aid is uh, you have to decide who owns what and who is owed what. So for the poultry uh, system, the poultry industry going on right now, there's a whole lot of farmers out there with millions of dollars in liability and houses and technology and land and uh, labor and other costs that they incur. But technically, and through their contract, they don't own that chicken that is uh, the the leasee of their house. They're just there as a, a tenant for a while. And uh, the, the grower gets paid on how much weight he can put on them and how good of conditions that he can provide for them to grow in. So very different than a lot of other farming structure that you hear about uh, that, you know, just take a, a cotton crop, for instance. If you have a loan on it or you have uh, insurance on it, you own that cotton until uh, the gin takes it off your hands. And if you're a part owner in the gin, then you might still have liability. But uh, so as we, as we try to navigate poultry uh, and try to get them some assistance, USDA's response from this first uh, big pot of stimulus that they're hopefully going to be announcing soon is that, well, we can't help poultry because they don't own the bird. We're trying to navigate how to get them some assistance on the cost that they're still incurring and the risk that they're still having uh, while they don't truly own the commodity that they're housing. I love how you try to be diplomatic with your words, uh, saying liability when that's debt, that's millions of dollars in debt. And I said that last uh, episode as well, that these poultry farmers have with no income. In fact, added expense if, the, if they have to lose the flock. Furthermore, before you even respond to that, Andy, it's debt and it's, you know, these houses that really can't be used for anything other than raising those chickens. Well, and I, I guess part of why I call it liability, you're right, is the term debt doesn't taste good in, in my household. So I don't try to uh, speak it too often around here. But uh, they, they have liability beyond debt, too, on they have employees that depend on them for their livelihood. They have uh, a lot of other, you know, pieces of this supply chain that all come down to that farmer still being able to operate. So for those that are out there that question all of this uh, stimulus money, all these dollars, you know, you can call it a handout. You can call it what you want. But this is a uh, this is a security for our nation to keep these essential businesses going because while right now, the, certainly the, the top essential industry in our country is medical and, and healthcare and those workers, and we thank them for what they do, um, they still eat 
hopefully a couple times a day. And then if the farmer isn't there to provide that for them to do what they need to do, then uh, we're all in big trouble. So that's, that's why we're trying to help these guys out, not because they're hurting like every other business in the country, um, but because they're essential to every other business in the country. Yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't be able to work in communications if I had to grow all of my own food. Not only that, I don't exactly have the the best land to do that on anyway, uh, living in a subdivision. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the uh, USDA food box program. What happened there, especially with, uh, all the interest? Well, this is a big shock, and I just got this uh, a little bit ago, so some breaking news for this pod, but uh, USDA's announced, well, they announced a few weeks ago that they were going to attempt to do this food box program, and it was a new idea. It was a new program, so nobody really knew what it was going to look like, but they said uh, that they had, um, I think, $100 million to, to make it run, but uh, it was it was in the millions. Well, they come out with a press release a little while ago that says this has been so successful and they have so many people applying. Um, and what it does is it connects the farmer to food banks and other charitable organizations that are trying to feed people that are hungry. Uh, the mechanism of which it's doing that still has some government red tape where you have to apply, you have to be a vendor, uh, and you kind of have to have some oversight to make sure what you're saying you're giving to these uh, charitable organizations is going to them and then they have to make sure that they're actually giving it to people in need. But that structure has been so successful that they said today it's going to be $1.2 billion instead of a hundred million dollars. So uh, on the AFBF call I was on before this, somebody said, uh, does anybody know where they got that money? And Scott Bennett with AFBF said, uh, no, that's one question that we didn't ask. We were just glad they had it and they were ready to spend it. So uh, we're we're hopeful that that's uh, gonna make it to the to the farm gate and help our farmers. But um, we're just excited that it's gonna help need you know people with needs and to use it to use American grown food and produce and meat and um, to to keep things domestic and and take care of our neighbor. I know. Really important. A lot of farmers watch and see where imports are, are coming in from. I know there are some rice farmers who've been watching what other countries have been doing concerning rice, and I know that's been impacting the markets a little bit as well. I had a talk with uh, Richard Fontenot yesterday about some of that. But let's, I guess, stick with some of the domestic issues. Uh, when are we going to see, and I can't call it by the alphabet soup name, I have to say C-F-A-P. I just, I can't say it. It's, it's. Yeah, they, they did us wrong with that acronym, Avery, but uh, this food assistance program, everybody's tapping their foot. And it's funny, it, it's almost kind of the forgotten piece now. Everybody in my world has moved on to, well, what are we going to get in the next stimulus for ag and for poultry and for uh, ethanol and all these people that got left out, but we don't even know what the people that were put in are going to get yet. And so that's been the uh, $16 billion question. Um, we have gotten word that USDA has a rule put together. Uh, the way those channels work is it has to get sent to the White House, to the Office of Management and Budget, and they uh, dissect it and and see if it's a good use of, of federal dollars. But uh, a lot of lawyers and a lot of oversight there. But uh, 
we are very hopeful that uh, maybe by the end of next week uh, or at the latest the week after that we have those rules and FSA will be um, getting training to to roll the, those dollars out. Those those that's the key direct payment money that's going to come to the farmer to uh, help them get through this pandemic. Is it tough for you and the folks over at American Farm Bureau to continue to do this job sort of from a, uh, I guess you, you're used to working a little bit from a distance, calling up on all these staffers and all these uh, congressmen, but to not, you usually make a few trips to DC as well. And your bag ain't been packed in a while. No, um, you know, on one hand, yeah, it's difficult. Um, it's difficult more so, I think, congress, you know, with congressional staff and taking members. I mean, that's what my job is, is I'm, I'm not a lobbyist. I'm just that conduit from the member to the, to the congressional member, but uh, the Farm Bureau member to congressional member. But um, that side's tough. But honestly, uh, from AFBF and from my colleagues that do what I do at other state Farm Bureaus, I think this has actually helped because we're we've been forced to communicate through weekly zooms and tons of emails. I mean, people have really over communicated. And for me, that's, I, I appreciate that because I'm not the expert on poultry. I've never grown a chicken. I'm, I don't know what goes on in the Dakotas as far as ethanol and DDGs and how that plays into feedlots and, I mean, all of that's not our bread and butter here in Louisiana, but it affects us. It affects price and market and all that every day. So uh, it's given me some insight that I really have been able to use and uh, have been feel like we've been ahead of the game for the most part on getting our, our congressional offices what they need to know. Well, Andy, one of the things that we talked about early on in, in these episodes, probably episode three, four, five, and that's rural broadband. We talked with both you and Joe about that. Um, and with us living online like we are nowadays, ha- has there been anything else moving in that direction? Uh, or is everybody just working on assistance programs? And Joe, I got the same kind of question for you here on the state level after Andy. First and foremost, I'll just say that infrastructure is the big debate on this next round of stimulus. Uh, I think the idea there is that instead of throwing money in a hot burning fire that is the coronavirus and all of its needs, that maybe if you throw the money into more infrastructure and long-term projects, that maybe that'll stimulate the economy. That's a a classic economics debate of macroeconomics is how do you, how do you spend the money wisely? But um, there's also been some cool stuff I know Landa Lakes was partnering with American Farm Bureau to utilize a, a rural broadband, a, a connect in your local community. I don't remember the title that they had for the program, but where they were trying to get businesses like a parish Farm Bureau office who has good internet uh, to run their business. If there's a kid out there that can't do their homework, well, maybe you section off two parking spaces in the parking lot where his mama can bring him up there and let him get his homework done. Uh, so that's, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures and, and, and result in innovation. We've seen that in federal policy is innovative on what packages they're coming up with. Well, businesses are coming up with ways too to help their neighbor through things like that. Just let 
people bum off hearing that a little bit. You got to be careful legality wise, but, uh, but yeah, that's, that's still big and it's, it's needed now more than ever when everybody's at home trying to, to live their life. So Joe, what's happening on the state level when it comes to rural broadband? Avery, uh, that's a great question because we went down to the legislature mainly to protect agriculture and rural Louisiana. However, a bill was filed that could be seen as uh, an essential piece of legislation on rural broadband. Uh, it's filed by the uh, second in charge in the Senate, the under uh, uh, Senator, I mean President Pro Tem Beth Mizell, and she passed the bill out of the House Committee yesterday with an amendment and what it is, Andy, can you speak to a hundred million dollars that's available out there for rural broadband if we apply? Is that part of the USDA program? I have to look back at the specific numbers, but I know in the CARES Act that there was more dollars for the ReConnect program and some other rural broadband programs. I have to look back at the specific figures. Well, not, this money comes from the USDA, okay? And, and, and I'm not sure which division or sector or whatever, but it's around $100 million that's coming down to Louisiana for electric co-ops uh, to go into the broadband business. And here's the kicker. When the bill, a big, long fight yesterday in committee, but when the bill came out of committee, it was amended to apply to only unserved areas. So what's interesting about that is in the definition of unserved is wireless. So if you have only wireless, in your area that is still considered eligible to apply for these monies uh, as an unserved area. And I was speaking with Senator Stuart Cathy, chairman of the Senate Ag Committee yesterday about this issue. And he said, Joe, he says, I've got five parishes in my district. He says, we can't go home to broadband like you can in Baton Rouge. He says, we were uh, put at home with this mandate. He says, and our children are supposed to be distance educating and we're supposed to be distance working. And, you know, you can't. And so really what this issue is about for Senator Kathy, and I'm, I feel safe I'm quoting him properly, you know, this is about children and education, broadband is. Especially when, you know, that's it. That's what he said. He didn't say any more than that. It's just about education and children. And so asked the bill off, off, out of committee yesterday. Uh, the, some of the big utility companies would like to get into this business because, you know, you see an alligator sees a piece of food floating down the bayou in front of it, you know, and it snatches it. And so they could have got into the broadband business a long time ago, uh, but they didn't. And then there's this money coming down the pike and all of a sudden they're interested. Well, here's the problem with them jumping on. And that's an amendment Beth Mizell had to fight off. They don't play by the same rules. They're not regulated by the FCC, I mean, the FCC or the PS, okay? So they would, if they got in the bill, they would be able to go compete in the areas with and just cherry pick the already existing accounts, no hardware to put out or anything, the big big commercial accounts or whatever. Hey, we'll do your stuff cheaper, we'll do it better. And they wouldn't be obligated to go into the rural, and you know, they would say, you let us in the bill, we're gonna go into the rural areas. They wouldn't be legally obligated to go in. And so there's no and there's no money to be made there. Our argument is they wouldn't be And so other people say, well, reason those areas are unserved, a lot of them, is because uh, it's too risky of an investment. Well, there's companies uh, that are willing to partner, and Andy, we had this conversation before, uh, with these utilities, these co-ops, uh, so that they could, uh, a third-party investor, so that they'll have a cooperative endeavor agreement or something like that, they would be able to do this. 
you know? So it's a, it's a huge opportunity for Louisiana. Uh, we've got to keep the bill exactly like it is right now, which means uh, in only in unserved areas. And we have a definition of that, but we don't want to get too specific of it because unserved is kind of obvious, you know, uh, what, what, what it is. But I like the fact that it's wireless. Well, I got to ask this question because uh, – this has been something that has stuck in my craw for quite a while. What happened to 5G being the great rural broadband savior? And I, I know, I guess because I know some of the technical side of it, uh, it, it kind of bothers me. But what, what happened to that? You know, the, I can tell you that AT&T's got a huge project in New Orleans with repeaters down there uh, all over the place. And they tell me it's going well, Avery. But I will tell you that it's been going down there for a while, and we're not transferring it to uh, other parts of the state. Right. I was going to say, New Orleans is not rural. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay, if you're applying it to rural, yeah. No, uh, I actually uh, asked that question, you know, who's who's, who's, who's part of all this? And it's, it's only people that signed up, you know. It's not a mandate that goes out to everybody. So it's just people that signed up. So you have a limited database that's in the, you know, that's, that's put together. Yeah. And I mean, part of the problem is the, the 5G trans, you know, transceivers have a, a shorter range than the older styles because they work on a different, different wavelength. And so I know I'm getting into way into the technical weeds and showing my nerd card big time. Well, that you're, you're actually extolling the virtues of 5G right there because you can put those little, uh, uh, repeaters anywhere, you know, on the side of a building or a trash can even, and then you can you basically create little cell zones that are adjacent to each other that can go from all here on into perpetuity, depending on how many repeaters you have. But you, know? but you can cover more area with a large tower and that uses a different wavelength. Uh, I kind of hear conspiracy theory 5G coming through, <laughs> and uh, I can't, I can't Do really not. sign on to that yet, you know, uh, but, but I hear you, brother. Do not... Do not let my aluminum foil hat scare you off, okay? I'm I'm wearing it proudly. Yo, I didn't I didn't know you would ever turn down on a conspiracy theory. Who me? <laughs> yeah. Hey, look, I've seen some of the videos where they blow up the five G receivers, and it really you know people go out in the middle of the night and blow them up because they really think these things are causing the coronavirus. Oh wow! You know, and they you they. They, should, they 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 sent the coronavirus out to mask the symptoms, so we wouldn't we wouldn't guess, you know, that it was the five G. So yeah, it gets out there, you know. I can understand it, but Carl, you know, I, I like more of a uh, you know, I don't know, mainstream uh, conspiracy theory. I got you. That's a little bit too out there for you. Yeah. Well, that's about all the time we have this week for the Grassroots Government Podcast, mostly because I've got to do some radio reports in a couple of minutes. So, Joe, if you would be so kind to thank Carl Wiggers and Andy Brown. I'm going to take this opportunity to thank you three gentlemen for letting me be at the Grassroots Government table because I know that if I'm not at the table, I'm on the menu. <laughs> <laughs>